If I were God, I'm not sure I would have chosen me. Have you ever felt like that? We all have those kinds of thoughts. Some of us just don't want to admit it. But God is in the business of devising ways to bring us back when we've blown it, or we've taken a wrong turn, or said the wrong thing, or quit too early, or just didn't perform up to our own expectations. When you're tempted to doubt your ability to be used by God, remember His creativity. He's looking for unusual candidates to change their world. Who knows? It might just be you. Stranger things have happened, you know. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, right now, either from one of the venues here at Long Point in the Chapel or Warehouse, or an off-site campus, or on the internet, podcast, wherever you happen to be. Uh, we're glad that you're along. You know, I was thinking as I came up uh, today, what a privilege it is, honestly, to be able to worship with you guys on the weekend. I think about believers around the world. I think about a pastor in Iran who is in jail uh, for trumped-up charges and can't freely move about. And it kind of brings perspective as we, you know, we got up this morning and decided, you know, I'm going to go to church. There was no opposition to that other than your own body, you know, getting out of bed. And it is a privilege and it's an honor and it's a joy to be together uh, today. And I want you to know I, I love worshiping with you guys. I love being your pastor. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered how can you tell if somebody is really a mature Christian? Have you ever wondered that? How can, how can you tell? I mean, is, is, is there something? Is there a specific thing or a list of things? Is it the way that they look? You know? Is it what they know? Is it what they say? Is there a competency test that if you know these four things or if you do these three things, then you're mature in your faith? Is it a posture during worship? Is it hands in the air or hands in the pocket? Is it the ability to speak in an unknown tongue? Or is it the ability to speak, period? You know, oftentimes I hear, so-and-so is just such a good pastor. I even hear that about myself. You are such a good pastor. And in my mind, I ask, based on what? Is it because I give good messages every once in a while? About one out of three, you know. Is it the ability to speak? Does that make him or her mature? Could you be a riveting speaker and be immature at the same time? What does it look like? What does a mature Christian look like? How can you tell? Does it have to do with age? When you reach a certain age, you've reached maturity, kind of like a spiritual bar mitzvah. It's kind of a coming out time. How do you know when you've arrived? Have you ever wondered that? What does a spiritually mature Christian look like? Well, you know what? I think I found the answer. And I think I found it in a very unusual place. When I was 10 years old, my parents went on a mission trip, an extended mission trip. And um, so they took us to my grandparents' house, and I spent part of the summer with my grandparents in Rush Springs, Oklahoma. Anybody ever been to Rush Springs, Oklahoma? Anybody ever heard of Rush Springs, Oklahoma? And I'm going to tell you about Rush Springs, Oklahoma, because it was there that I found the answer to the question that I'm asking you. Rush Springs, Oklahoma is a town with a population currently of 1,344 people. It's a growing community because it's up about 150 from when I was 10 years old. 
Rush Springs, Oklahoma is about an hour south of and a world away from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. My grandfather pastored a small church in Rush Springs. Now, it wasn't in that church that I discovered what mature Christians look like and how you can tell who's a mature Christian because that church um, was a very immature church. I had been there a long time, but it was filled with very immature people whose members thought they were exceptionally mature. Someday I may do a message just on that church. I understand 1 Corinthians and Paul's letters to the Corinthian church probably much better than just about anybody because of the summer that I spent in that church. That church was a Pentecostal church. They had all of the spiritual gifts operating. But they were terrible. They, they hated each other. It was just a horrible, horrible, horrible time. But that's not the focus of this story. Rush Springs had one claim to fame and still does. In fact, the water tower, as you come into this little town, proclaims Rush Springs, Oklahoma to be the watermelon capital of the world. Now, that's a pretty bodacious claim for a town of 1,344 people. Would you not agree? But there it is on the water tower. Rush Springs, Oklahoma, watermelon capital of the world. On the second Saturday in August every year, they host the Rush Springs Watermelon Festival. There's a little sign, one of those two-wheeled, on a two-wheeled trailer, you've seen those signs with an arrow, you know, pointing and kind of tacky looking. We, we had one when we first started our church. And uh, you put the little letters on there. There's this sign and it sits on U.S. Highway 81 and State Highway 17 and it points visitors to the park where the festivities are held. It's a three-day festival. It's exciting. The first two days they have a rodeo. They have a parade. They have judging the best watermelon based on all kinds of different criteria, the largest, the prettiest, the best tasting, all of those things. But the most important events are held on the final day. That's when the Lions Club auctions off the prize melon, the grand champion watermelon festival melon for charity. And then at noon, the seeds will fill the air during the seed spitting contest been going on for years but the culmination is the crowning of the watermelon queen she proudly steps up puts the sash on in the crown and represents rush springs oklahoma the watermelon capital of the world for the next year to say that the town's identity is wrapped up in watermelons would be an understatement can i tell you that that summer we ate lots of watermelons In fact, in 2007, just three or four years ago, the Oklahoma State Senate passed a bill declaring the watermelon as the official state vegetable. Now, there was some controversy with the vote concerning whether it was a fruit or a vegetable. Today, I'm not going to take a stand or get involved in partisan politics. Get my name in the paper. Get people upset. So I don't know whether Democrats or Republicans lobbied against it being the state vegetable, but it happened, and it is. But it was in that little town, and in subsequent years as I remember the lessons that I discovered, what a mature Christian looks like. So today what I want to do is I want to talk to you about what I learned about maturity from a watermelon. 
Now, there's no sledgehammer here, so you guys are okay. <laughs> but, but I want to give you two or three lessons that I think are simple, but they're profound. How many of you know that, that simple things aren't easy necessarily? And I want to make it as simple as I possibly can, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will ap- apply the profound part. Here's the first lesson I learned. It's really hard to spot a mature melon just by looking at it. I've got a melon here. You have no idea whether this is a mature, sweet-tasting melon or a sour, immature melon. You have no idea. You went into the grocery store as I did. We had to hunt all over because it's not watermelon season. But when you find a watermelon and you look at it, they all look pretty much alike. Now, there are some that maybe have a damaged place and you go, okay, I'm not going to do that. Or you've got some that maybe an animal has eaten into and you go, I'm not going to do that. But By and large, when you look at a melon, when you look at the outside of a melon, they all look pretty much alike. It's really hard to spot a mature melon by looking at it. In fact, if that's all you do, you're going to be fooled by the outer appearance. Now, that's an easy pivot to make, isn't it, with maturity? Um, A few months ago, we were in a series uh, called Rise and Fall, Studying the Life of David. And uh, one of the more interesting stories was actually the choosing of David as a king. Do you remember that story? Just to kind of refresh your memory, uh, Israel had a king and his name was uh, Saul. Big, good-looking guy, looked like a king. And God wanted a new king and so he, he went to a godly man. He went to uh, a spiritual giant, the, the, most, the most godly prophet in the land. He's kind of like me. And... <laughs> He said, I want you to choose the next king. And so Samuel, the prophet, went to the house of Jesse. You remember David's dad. And he said, God has sent me here. We're going to choose a king uh, from among your sons. And Jesse said, that's easy. I want you to take a look at my oldest son. And he brought out his oldest son. And, And not only was Jesse impressed, but Samuel said, this must be the one. Because he looks like a king. He has a kingly demeanor he has a kingly stature this is the next king for israel this is a prophet of god saying this and here's what god said but the lord said to samuel do not consider his appearance or his height for i have rejected him the lord does not look at the things that man looks at man looks at the outer appearance but the lord looks at the heart The Lord looks at the heart. You cannot tell from outer appearance what is inside of a man or woman's heart. But let me tell you this. You need to read those stories like this and go, if Samuel the prophet, the most godly man on the planet at that time, almost made a major mistake by looking at the outer appearance, you're going to make mistakes all the time. Because you're going to look at the outer appearance rather than what is on the inside. Can I say this? Most assumptions that you make about other people based on outer appearance are probably wrong. Let me say it again. I would like to just stop right now. That's the message. That's the end. Let's meditate on that for about a month. Most assumptions that you make about people's motives, about people's actions, people's intentions about anything about another person. in this, You've done it today. You've walked in here today and you've made some assumptions 
about people that are in your row, people that drove up by, based on the car that they drove, uh, the, the way that they were dressed, maybe whether they looked at you or didn't look at you, how friendly they seemed to be or didn't seem to be, how they shook your hand, whether it was firm or whether it was just kind of squishy. You made all kinds of assumptions today. And can I tell you this? Most of them, and when I say most, I'm talking 97 to 98% of your assumptions were absolutely wrong. You were deceived. Because you judged by outer appearance. By outer appearance. The other day I was in a, in, in, in a line in an area of business. And it came my turn. I was busy. I'm a godly man. I've got a lot to do. I'm changing the world. <laughs> so I waited patiently. How many of you know that you can wait? You can about endure anything if you can just complain about it. How many of you know that? So I'm waiting patiently in line. Just as it becomes my time to step up, this, 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 this lady goes right in front of me. Cuts in line. Can I tell you, at that moment, I made several assumptions about her. I thought, that is, she is rude. She's impatient. And if she's a Christian, and since it was in Mount Pleasant, she probably is. She's not a very good one. She's arrogant. She's selfish. I had her condemned to an eternity apart from God based on her butting in front of me. I'm thinking, woman, all that's going to get you is cuts in line to hell. We're talking a spiritual giant here. Based on what? Based on outer appearances. I made a judgment. Has anybody else ever done that here? Raise your hand. Bunch of hypocrites right in there. Just made a judgment on you. Because the truth could have been much deeper. Chances are she didn't even see me. She may not have known that this was a line, this wasn't. Maybe she's daydreaming and or concerned about something else. Have you ever been there? You should have had your mind on something, but you're thinking about something else. And it may be just trivial stuff, you know, how the Gamecocks are doing, how much better they are than Clemson, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> or, or it could be something seriously concerning you, and you're thinking about it, and all of a sudden your mind goes and th- th- there's an open register, and you just step up, and it has nothing to do with rudeness, selfishness. You're not even thinking about the other people. You just happen to make a mistake. Have you ever been there? Or maybe she was late to something very important and she did it on purpose. Or maybe she has stomach problems and the fact that she buttered in saved all of us from embarrassment at that particular time. Let's be honest, you've been there too. Let let me say it again. Most of my assumptions and your assumptions, and I'm talking 98, 99% now, about other people's motives, intentions, and actions or anything else are wrong. They're wrong. But because we're human, we judge by what? Outer appearance. Outer appearance. I want you to remember that this week. I want you to remember that when you leave this place. I'd, I'd love for some of you to get serious about it and just count up in about an hour how many of those kinds of judgments that you make. And then remember my words. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're probably wrong. Now, If your first experience 
eating a watermelon is based on outer appearance. And the melon is not mature. Let's say what's inside of here is not mature, so it's not sweet, it's sour. If your first experience on eating one of those is based on outer appearance and it was a bad one, you're not going to want any more. Because immature melons leave a bad taste in your mouth. In my book, uh, Irreverent, I, I do a chapter on maturity and I talk about an encounter with this Canadian couple that Debbie and I had uh, two or three years ago when we were on a cruise. Uh, uh, the cruise where the boat burned down, ultimately. <laughs> but uh, we, we were, this is before the boat burned down, everything's nice, we're excited. And we're sitting out on a, on a breakfast and we're looking at this just beautiful scenery and, and we're sitting out on, on deck at a table and we're just enjoying and most of the tables are full and this couple comes up to us and says, do you mind if we sit here? We said, Fine. So we began to talk just a little bit and found out that uh, Marsha, uh, her name was an IT specialist. She was actually from Jamaica originally, but now she was a Canadian. And uh, her husband, uh, and they hadn't been married all that long, was Ray. He's about my age, maybe a little bit, little bit older. And he was a lawyer originally, I think, from Scandinavia somewhere, and now was a Canadian. And as we just began to kind of pass the time of day, the question came up that always defines the relationship, especially as it relates to me. What do you do for a living? And I was a little hesitant to say, but we'd already pre-discussed that question. The reason I was hesitant, because when somebody asks that question of me, when I say I'm a pastor, either there's a real engagement that goes on or there's a real distancing that goes on. And uh, so I, I said, I'm a pastor. And it was interesting to watch both of those Uh, events happen within them she was intrigued she had been raised in a pentecostal church had not been to church in a long time obviously felt a little conflicted about that but she was intrigued by the fact that they were sitting with a pastor now on the other hand ray went through i could just see him going through a mental legal pad of all the preachers that he disliked (laughs) so i thought i'm going to I'm going to get in, you know, I'm going to, that's a challenge to me. So I asked them about their spiritual journey. Where, where are you at on yours? She was embarrassed about her church attendance. And, you know, she said, well, we go Eastern Christmas and uh, everyone's fine. No, I should go more and all that kind of thing. He wasn't the least bit embarrassed at all. He assured me that he doesn't care about heaven, doesn't believe in hell, does read the Bible occasionally because it's interesting tries to live his life in such a way as to be able to sleep at night, put his head on the pillow and know that he's been a decent human being. And then he took a breath. And he said, in case you're interested, the most corrupt lawyers, he was a lawyer in the Toronto area, he said the most corrupt lawyers that he had had the pleasure of dealing with were Christians. He said, in fact, the worst are these guys that go to these stadium events. I don't know what they call that. And I thought, promise keepers. It's back a little bit. They go to these stadium events and they lift their hands in the air and then they have all these group hugs. I wanted to say, I've done those group hugs before, been there. He said, some of those guys are the worst I've ever met. In fact, if there is a hell, he says, I mean, he's getting worked up at this point. There ought to be a special kind of one for those type of people. Coincidentally, my Bible reading that morning had been from 2 Peter chapter one and two. And as I read it, I was kind of, you know, why, why am I reading this? And then at that moment, I knew exactly why. Because Second Peter chapter two talks about the judgment 
of name-only, appearance-only Christians who use the Bible to take advantage of others. And there are some of those out there. Not a lot, but there are some who call themselves Christians, use the Bible uh, for greedy purposes. You know, get gullible, immature believers to follow them, give them money, and cheat people and all that kind of thing. And the Bible says that there is a judgment for them. In fact, there's a special level of judgment for those who do that. And so I had read that that, sm- that morning. And so as soon as he took a breath, I jumped in. I said, I've got some good news and bad news for you. Which do you want first? Kind of grouchy guy. He says, you know, let's do the bad news. I said, okay, bad news. There is a hell and you're probably going there. I actually do those things. It's kind of fun because you win friends. You seriously do because a guy like that, he thinks he's a bully. I'll engage you. Let's go. You know, that type thing. (laughs) And I said, but God is fair. God is fair. I I believe that that we can trust that he is. He says, so what's the good news? I said, the good news is I was reading this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. And hey, if you want to read a Bible, you say you do it every once in a while. You ought to go there. God says that... um, not only is there a hell, but name only Christians who take advantage of other people are probably going there too. He goes, hmm. How about that? Now, the rest of the story is uh, about two days later, the boat caught on fire. Then everybody wanted a preacher, you know. <laughs> and uh, we happened to run into these two as we were uh, disembarking or whatever the ship. And... Uh, and he said, you know, he said, uh, I went up to the ship library and I, I pulled out a Bible and I read that passage of Scripture that you were talking about. That's interesting. He said, I kind of like you. <laughs> he said, you know, maybe me and Marsha will come down and visit Charleston someday. It's a great city. And uh, he said, I'll give you another swing at converting me. And uh, I said, you know, that'd be great. Why don't you come? But in the book, I said, you know, I doubt they ever will. But if you're a Canadian Christian and you run into a grouchy old lawyer who spews all kinds of stuff, just understand he's in process. God's got his number. Be nice to him. (laughs) I sowed seeds you may be able to reap them. But if a non-believer's first taste of Christianity is with a name-only or immature believer, it leaves a bad taste. So the goal for everybody in this room is maturity. In fact, Ephesians says it this way. Ephesians 4.13 says the goal is that we will be mature and full-grown in the Lord, measuring to the full stature of Christ. So God wants everybody who can hear my voice right now to be healthy, fully mature believers. There are people who are who are dying apart from God, who desperately need a model that measures up to Jesus, to the full stature of Christ, producing good fruit. But the first thing I learned about mature believers in Rush Springs, Oklahoma, is that you can't judge a package by the outside. So, how can you tell if that melon is mature? About the only way to judge the maturity of a melon is to do what? Does anybody know? You thump it. You thump it. I mean, you could cut it open, but then, you know, they won't let you do that in the grocery store. You've got to do that at home. So in the grocery store, you thump it. You thump it. That's what you do. And there's a different sound to thumping. Now, I have no idea whether this is mature or not because I'm not good at this. Don't do it often. My grandfather was a pro. He would sometimes go through 10 or 15 melons in a, 
you know, in a, uh, we didn't have a grocery store. We had a, a melon market or something. And he'd go through and he'd thump, 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 thump. And he'd say, here, son, hear that? That's a, that's a ripe melon. And he got it right almost every time. A mature melon has a dull thump. It's just kind of a dull, kind of, kind of hollow, but dull thump. An immature melon or an unripe melon has a thinner, hollow sounding, it's a higher pitched, hollow sounding thump. Now, with believers, about the only way to measure our maturity is when our faith gets thumped. Okay? And what, what is that? The thump is an event. It's a person. It's a place or it's a thing that elicits an, a, a, a response. It's kind of the echo. The thump goes and you hear the echo. That's what's coming back at you. And the sound of that echo is the measure of the maturity of the faith. If it's a thin, whiny sound. Does anybody get that? Why did this happen to me? I mean, we're just doing really good. We love God and this goes wrong. That's an immature melon, okay? It's an immature Christian. If there is a deeper, reflective sound, hmm, God is my source. God is involved. What can I learn? Where, where are we going here with this? Then there's a more mature faith. So let me ask you, what thumps our faith? There's all kinds of things. I picked three of them. Three things thump our faith. The first thing that thumps our faith is challenging or difficult circumstances. God uses problems and crises and difficulties that come our way daily to help us grow. In fact, I believe that God uses those things even more than He does the Bible. You know, if I was to ask you what helps you grow, probably the first thing that you'd do, just reflectively, especially if you've been in church a long time or if you're a Baptist, you would say, reading the Bible helps me grow. And I would say, yeah, it does. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Probably you're a little legalistic about it. And so it may be more detrimental to you than it really is helpful just because of how you approach it. But even more than the Bible are circumstances, because you only read the Bible, what, just a few minutes every day? You have circumstances 24-7. So do you think God would take advantage of those circumstances to help you grow if that's the goal? Absolutely. In fact, Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. That's interesting. Let me just stop right there. We can rejoice. Now, is that a hollow thump or is that a, uh, a deeper maturity sounding thump? When your problems come and the first thing that you do is you rejoice. Is there anybody in here that does that? Probably not. But you know what? One way to measure maturity is the, um, uh, the, the, you measure the distance between the time that the problem comes, the thump, and the response of counting it all joy. And rejoicing because we know what it says when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they are good for us. They can help us to endure, and endurance develops strength of character in us, and character strengthens our confident expectation of salvation. Okay, so let's talk about that just a minute. That's one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. I've heard people, you know, that kind of think they're mature, that just take that to extremes. It, it, it doesn't mean that we rejoice about our problems. Oh, I'm sick. Praise God. 
We got a cancer report this week. Praise God. Lost my job. Praise God. That's not mature. That's sick is what that is. (laughs) Silly is what that is. No, that's not what we rejoice uh, for. In fact, circle for we know on your outline sheet. For we know. For we know. For we know that they are good for us. We rejoice in what we know about our problems. We don't rejoice in the problem. We rejoice in what we know about our problems. So what do we know? Let me give you three or four things. We know that God is greater than any problem. Doesn't matter what comes. God is greater. I know that. I can rejoice in that. I know that God can use any problem to help me grow. I rejoice in that. I know that problems cause me to build patience and character in my life. That's a good thing. So I can rejoice in that. I know that if I respond correctly, God will use it for my benefit. And I know that God can bring good out of bad. So here's what you do. When your faith is thumped, when your faith is thumped by difficult circumstances, Rehearse what you know. Rehearse what you know. I know that God is greater than anything that I'm facing right now. I know that God can use this. I know that I'm going to grow through this. I know that God, even if it's bad, that God can take a bad situation and turn it out for my good. So review that. Let me tell you what else thumps our faith is unexpected delays. Unexpected delays. Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever prayed not gotten an answer immediately? Anybody at all? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when that happens, there's a delay to my dream. There's a delay to what I'm hoping for. There's a delay to what I'm praying for. And it's thumped. Then what does it sound like? Is it kind of whiny? Complaining? Well, I'm just going to quit. They're going to treat me that way. If I can't get... I'm just... Why even bother? Immature. There's always a waiting period in the Bible. You look through the characters of God. God made a promise to Abraham. And then there was, a, there was a time lapse. Noah, only 125 years. Could you do that? Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flood the earth. You build a boat. How long is it going to take? Oh, I don't know. I'll tell you. Next time he hears from God. Hears from God one time, 125 years later. Would you be faithful? Would you be consistent? Joseph, David, children of Israel. I mean, when, when God said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt into the promised land. I've been over there. Um, you know how long it would have taken to walk from the capital of Egypt to the edge of the promised land? Two weeks. Two weeks. Took them 40 years. Now, part of that was their problem, but part of it was designed. In fact, Exodus 13 and verse 17 says, When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them on the road that runs through Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest way from Egypt to the promised land. God said, If the people are faced with battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. There was God's purpose in the delay. God had a reason why what they desired was not happening yet. So why are there seasons of waiting? There's all kinds of reasons. A couple of them are, is that God just simply uses them to prepare us. They weren't ready for war. And so the delay prepared them. They weren't ready. I don't know about you, but when there's a delay in my life, I had one recently. I was thinking about something and, and I felt like God had made a promise to me in this area and there's a delay and it, it, the thump was coming and it was kind of whiny what was coming out of my mouth. Now, a lot less whiny than what you do. <laughs> Need to know that. It was kind of whiny. I'm thinking, I'm ready for it. Well, why not? And then, and then the thought came, you know what? God knows whether you're ready or not. 
God knows the seasons. In fact, my favorite verse, my life verse is Galatians 6, 9. If you got, got a book and I autographed it, that was Galatians 6, 9. says that don't get weary in doing good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest if you don't quit. So my responsibility is simply to do good and not quit. That's the two parts that are mine. And God's are the right season and the harvest. And He knows when I'm ready. And so delays, they, they, they prepare us. Then God uses them to test us. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, it says, Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for 40 years, humbling you and testing you to prove your character, to find out whether or not you would really obey His commands. So how do you respond when your timetable gets thumped? Let me give you one more. Difficult people, difficult people thump our faith. You know anybody like that? When I think of difficult people, I think of Bruce. Bruce lived across the street from me in grade school. And every time I think of him, I think of painful memories because Bruce was a bully. Uh, Between the uh, grades three and six, we walked like four blocks to school. And he lived right across the street from me. And he whipped me almost every day from the third grade to the sixth grade. He was a bully. Uh, He would pick fights with other kids. When he ran out of people to fight with, he would fight me. Whipped me almost every day. Happiest day of my life is when we moved out of that neighborhood. One day he didn't whip me though. One day he said something negative about my sister, who's a wonderful lady and I love her and she's the wife of the campus pastor at the Savannah campus, but I didn't like her much back then. But he said something bad about my sister and I sucker punched him, bloodied his nose and then I ran like crazy. And went home. And even that day, Bruce's mom did what she did almost every day when he whipped me. She brought him over to my house so that he could apologize to me for his bloody nose. Bruce grew up to be the starting linebacker on one of Nebraska's Orange Bowl teams. And I had the privilege of living across the street from him. He was a difficult person. Here's the problem. All the difficult people don't go away in grade school. Have you noticed that? They sit next to you at school or work. Or they're married to one of your friends or one of your kids, or maybe even to you. <laughs> Sometimes they write anonymous letters to the newspaper editor telling lies about you and running down your character. I don't know what happens. How you respond to difficult people determines the tone of your thump and the level of your maturity. Jesus has this to say about how we respond. In uh, Matthew chapter uh, 5 and verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully or spitefully use you and persecute you. He says do four things. Look at, look at them. Look at them. Maybe circle them as, as we go through them. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who cur- curse you. Do good. Just you know, figure out good things to do to those who hate you and pray for those who... Sp- uh, spitefully use you. Can, can I give you a clue? If you do the last one first, the other four will kind of fall into line naturally. If you begin to pray for your enemies. See, thumps can be annoyances or they can become kairos moments. Those times when God breaks into our life and it measures the maturity of our faith. The key is what you do with them. When you get a thump, you can ignore it and just walk right on and you'll get it again and again and again and again. Same whiny pitch every time. But if you go, you know, God, you're breaking in. 
This might be a moment that I can learn from. If you repent and believe, if you, if you go through a process where you, where, where you observe what happened and you reflect on it, and then you get some friends around you to discuss why you're reacting the way that you are, and then you get a plan for the next time you run into a difficult person, the next time there's a delay in your life, the next time there's circumstances that just are hard, and you go, here's going to be my plan. Here's how I'm going to respond. Would you hold me accountable for that? Then you can grow. So it's hard to judge a melon just by looking at it. You can accurately judge the maturity of the melon just by thumping it. Let me give you one more. An immature melon will not continue to ripen once it's detached from the vine. Did you know that? I bet you didn't. Uh, Tomatoes. We go to the grocery store every once in a while and we'll get a tomato that's a little bit green. Do you guys do that? What do you do? You put it in the window because it continues to ripen. Here's the facts about melons. Once you cut the vine right here this one's been cut off the vine it will ripen not one bit more it's done it's done doesn't matter how long you put it in the sun doesn't matter what you do that melon is as ripe as it's going to get because it's been cut off from the vine it does not continue to ripen jesus told his disciples that he was the vine we are the branches that produce fruit take a look at john 15 and i want you to read that one out loud with me Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Read it together from the campuses. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. You cannot be fruitful apart from me. Your life in God is more like a watermelon than it is a tomato. If you are apart from the branch, he says, I am the branch, you're the vine. Or I'm the vine, you're the branch. If you are cut off, You're not going to grow anymore. You will wither up. You will not produce fruit. So here's the question. How do you remain in the vine? How do you stay on the vine? I want to be careful here. I want to be careful. I'm going to give you a couple of things. I want to be careful though. Because you can become real legalistic about this. And you can miss the whole growth process. We do it. We do it. I don't want you to do that. Let me give you um, uh, two or three attitudes and then a couple of actions and we're done with how we mature and how we grow. Daily attitudes. Daily attitudes. Let me ask you another question. If you think someone is angry and harsh and mad at you all the time, are you going to want to hang around with them? No. No. If I think somebody's mad at me and they're angry and they're harsh, man, I'm going to keep my distance. they got little circles all over them where people are touching them with 10-foot poles. I don't want to get close to somebody like that. And here's the deal. A lot of you think that God is mad and angry and harsh with you. And so you don't want to get close to Him. And yet that's where the life comes from, from staying in the vine. So here's here's some attitudes. I think this will help you. Daily attitudes. The first thought that you have every morning ought to be this. God loves me. And He's for me today. I got up this morning. That was the first thought I thought. Father, You love me. And you are for me. Here's what Scripture says. Romans 8.31 If God is for us, who can ever be against us? If God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. Romans 8.38 says, And I am convinced. What if you were convinced? No wonder Paul, the writer of this, was so successful in ministry, in his daily life. He said, I'm totally convinced of this, that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. 
Death can't, life can't, angels can't, demons can't, our fears for today can't, our worries about tomorrow. In other words, our deficiencies can't. Even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to stay in the vine? You wake up every morning and your first thought is, God is crazy about me. Father, you love me. Not so much even, I love you. Father, you love me. And you are for me today. Second thought, God has good things for me to do today. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we could do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Most of you who've been here for a long time, you know I get nervous about public speaking. It's just one of the things that's in me. It's a thorn in the flesh for me, okay? When I, before I came up here uh, for this message, and I do every message, I say, God, together today, th- th- we're going to do some cool things because you have already preordained that I do the works that you've created me to do, and you're going you're gonna to do it through me today. Third thought, God will use any challenging moments today for my good. How many of you um, how many of you have challenging moments every day? If you don't, I, can I live your life? Every day I wake up with the best intentions and there's at least one thing, usually several things, that go wrong. That go, I wasn't planning on that. I didn't know that. Thump, 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 thump. It says, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that God causes everything to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purposes. So, wake up. God loves me. He's for me. God has good things for me today. God will use even the challenging moments for my good. Daily attitudes. Let me give you a couple of daily actions. This is where we have to be careful. Get a mindset that a relationship with God grows as we spend time together. And so what are your rhythms of spending time together? Things like Bible reading. You don't read the Bible to check off that I did it today. Daily Bible reading uh, you know, programs are good, but they can be detrimental if you get legalistic about it. God loves you just as much if you read the Bible as if you don't. There's not one thing you can do to earn God's favor today. He loves you as much as He's ever going to love you. So what you do is you read the Bible not to check off a box. You read the Bible to put yourself in a place where God can nourish you, to connect to the vine. So that God can nourish you through His Word. Same with prayer. The same with prayer. A lot of people struggle with prayer. What do I say? What do I do? I don't know what to do with prayer. Prayer puts you in a place where God can nourish you so you can grow. Uh, Somebody uh, told me recently, I I try to shuffle up my prayer life and what I do, and I use patterns that that help me to kind of be consistent and do things. And uh, somebody this week, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, told me three questions that were really helpful in their prayer life. I'm going to give them to you. Lord, what are we going to do today? You sit down and you pray and you go, Lord, what are we going to do today? Takes my mind off of me. God, what's our our plan today together? Second question, what am I going to forget if you don't remind me? The other day I was uh, praying and I thought, I I prayed this, Lord, what am I going to forget if you don't remind me? And boom, there it was right there. Something that was very, very important that I needed to make a contact on. Who do I need to connect with today that's not on my to-do list. It's just putting myself in a place 
Prayer, Bible reading, fellowship, being in church. Why do you come? Because it's a place where God can nourish you. And as He nourishes you, you grow. Bottom line, it's all about getting to know Jesus. Second Peter uh, 1 and verse 3 says, As we know Jesus better, His divine power gives us everything we need for living a godly life. It's a relationship. Knowing God leads to self-control. Self-control leads to patient endurance. Patient endurance leads to godliness. Godliness leads to... And here's the pinnacle. Here's how you can really know if somebody's mature. It leads to love for other Christians. It's not what you know. It's who you love. And then ultimately, you will finally grow to have a genuine love for everybody. That's people that thump you and people that don't. You're going to have a love... That's maturity. The more you grow like this, the more you will become productive and useful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a question. What aftertaste are you leaving? When someone encounters you, are you moving toward maturity? See, we can all be at different levels of maturity. The thump will sound different for each one of us, but... We all need to be moving in the same direction. Don't you think it's about time to grow up and get out of spiritual kindergarten? Some of you, what that looks like is taking a step toward God today. It's beginning a relationship. You hear people talk about a relationship with God. Maybe the person that brought you, maybe somebody at work, they talk about a relationship with God and it's a disconnect for you. You begin it today because that's how you grow. You get plugged into the vine and you grow inside, become a better person, more productive to the kingdom of God. Some of you have disconnected for whatever reason you've Maybe it's stuff that's happened and it's gotten your eye off the prize and today I want to challenge you. Let's, let's start again. Let's get back. Let's do it. Here's the last thing I'm going to say to you. When you leave today, I want you to pick up a little piece of watermelon candy. There's going to be somebody at the doors. Don't go by without getting one. And here's what you're going to do. I want you to put it in your pocket or your purse or wherever you store things. And this week, when, not if, when your faith gets thumped, for some of you that may be before you get out of the parking lot. <laughs> I want you to take out that piece of candy. I want you to open it up. I can't even get it out of my pocket. Good thing I don't wear skinny jeans. <laughs> and I want it to remind you of the aftertaste that you leave in life. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Thank you for... This wonderful church and people who are hungry for you. God, I pray that you'd take this simple lesson and that you would apply it deeply into our spirits. That we might grow more and more every day in the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.